First Take, Her Take, hosted by L. Duncan, Kimberly A. Martin, and Charlie Arnold, gives you a peek into their lives as they navigate their careers and relationships while giving their unfiltered opinions on the sports world's hottest topics. Listen to First Take, Her Take, wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Hi, I'm Q Richardson, and my dilemma is uncomfortable shoes. What's wrong with them? You have like the world's biggest sneaker collection. I do, but I, I recently I had to come to LA this weekend and I had to go to a wedding and I was advised by my wife to wear <laughs> hard bottom shoes when I had normally been wearing, like you say, I wear J, I have been wearing J yep. with everything. She's like, hey, this is black tie. And my feet paid a hefty price for that. Ah, uh, yes, the old Kate Fagan, uncomfortable shoes at a wedding. Okay, so a few years ago, my former colleague Kate uh, came to me asking about a dilemma of her own. Was it okay if she wore Jordans to my wedding? Obviously. Of course, please do. I'll be disappointed if you don't. So she was all set too. And then some other folks got in her ear. They said it wasn't appropriate. So she went out and bought fancy heels, which she promptly got stuck in the flooring of the barn in which we held the reception. Eventually changed into the Jordan she brought. Honestly, never should have worried about the right shoes when the best shoes, the most comfortable shoes, the coolest shoes, the goat shoes were right there. So while I understand your wife wanting you to look appropriate, you know, Jays in a suit can't be beat. So next time you got to fight for your right to rock the Jays. In the meantime, if your feet are hurting from the uncomfortable shoes, uh, second skin blister stuff is the best. I rocked that all through college. I always had issues with my feet from heptathlon and that second skin stuff. I'll get you right. That's what she said. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. This is episode 343. This week's guest is the delightful Quentin Richardson, former NBA player, spent 13 seasons in the association, played for the Clippers, Suns, Knicks, Heat, and Magic, won the NBA three-point contest in 05. Uh, he currently works for the Fox Orlando Magic broadcast team, co-host the Knuckleheads podcast with longtime friend and former teammate Darius Miles for the Players' Tribune. He's a Chicago native, so of course we had to talk about coming up in the best city in the world. Uh, we got deep into some of the trauma he had to deal with with his mother's death and the murders of two of his brothers, why he wishes that he had embraced therapy earlier in life when dealing with that stuff, opposing teams throwing locks at his squad in high school, uh, the fans of those teams, his brief engagement to Brandy back in the day, the singer, why he decided to play in the big three after his retirement, all sorts of other stuff. Q is awesome. You're going to dig this. That's what she said. So excited to have Quinn Richardson on the podcast. Um, I feel like I'm turning the tables on you now that you've become a professional <laughs> podcaster. And so keeping in mind the spirit of Knuckleheads podcast, your podcast, I'm starting you off with a reverse of the first question you ask everybody. You guys always ask everyone when you got to the league, who was the person that busted your ass up first? So instead, I want to ask you if you remember who in the league you got that first moment on where you crossed them up or you dunked on or you did something and you were like, hey, welcome to the league. Oh, man. I felt like the 
the same game. I don't want to say, I mean, for me, I don't want to say it was like a moment where I crossed somebody over or anything. For me, it was when I when I got in the league and I and I my, my first bucket, I, I think I want to say it was in Denver, but um I can't remember exactly. But when I scored my first bucket, I was like, oh. I was like, I'm here. Like, <laughs> like it's this isn't on. so tough. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's, you know, it was just like, it was a, it was a, I guess you could say a, a, a stepping stone because you knew it was going to happen, but it was how, when, where it wasn't anything spectacular. But for me, that was enough just to know that it, okay, I got that out the way. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's go all the way back then to what got you to that first bucket in that beginning of your career. You grew up in Chicago, which I yeah. love because we get all the good stories from back in the day. Um, what neighborhood did you grow up in and were you into sports right off the bat? Absolutely. I'm uh, from the south side, from the hundreds to uh, the, the Roseland area, 115th Parnell right there uh went to went whistler elementary school so you know that whole area right there at cool park that's that's the way i'm born and bred and you were into hoops like right off the bat did you know you were going to be super tall no i didn't i mean i i kind of hit my growth sport i mean my growth spurt short, uh late compared to i feel like my peers and stuff like that i feel like i going into freshman and sophomore years when I got to be six two, six five, two summers in a row and I was waiting for another three inches, but it did I didn't get it after that. But still I, I felt like I got my spurt late. But um yeah, I I played ball, you know, from as long as I can remember with my brothers, cousins, friends in the neighborhood. I mean, that was what we did. We started on the crate, you know, we from Chicago. We yeah. cut the bottom out of the crate, go behind the Wendy's or a Burger King <laughs> or something and grab the crate, cut the bottom of it. Throw it on the pole in the alley out there, the telephone pole, the electric pole, and we get into it with a mini ball. You hear a lot about the the guys who grew up playing in Chicago. Um, not only how you learn to take a foul and finish, because you're probably not calling it almost any of the time that it happens. You're not going to call a foul. You're just going to play through it. But also that if people see talent, they try to protect you. And I know we talked about that here in Chicago a ton with Derrick Rose, especially at his size, that there was this feeling like he had something special and the neighborhood had to like keep him out of trouble and foster the hoops. Did you feel that when you were coming up? Like this is, this is bigger than just like playing outside with my friends. Um, I think it got to that point when you first start out when you, you know, I wasn't somebody that was spectacular like that out of the bat and something like that. But I think once I got to, you know, eighth, ninth grade, and, and you, you started to see it, and they started to see how serious I was with it, I think, in the neighborhood. As long as long as you don't do anything, you know, to cross the line or do anything offensive, like to, to intentionally start something, I think, you know, it was like that. Our era was like that, where they kind of protected them and said, yo, young boy, you know, leave little dude alone. He play ball or whatever like that. And, you know, they would even, even if you were trying to sometimes show up around something silly, they'd be like, yo, man, get, get, get from around here. What you doing over here? You know, that type of deal. Right. So, yeah, we definitely grew up in that type of era. So um, you're playing basketball. You've got four siblings when you're growing yes. up. Yes, yes. And so older siblings that showed you the ropes or older siblings that would never let you win? Like, what was this? Was this like wrestling matches in the middle of basketball games? I would say the only one I really played ball against was my, my brother Lee, who, who I lost in 06. But he 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 was the one who was closest to me in age. Everybody else was, was a lot older. My two older brothers didn't even live in the house anymore by the time I started to really play. But um, other than that, I really grew up playing with and against my cousins slash, you know, cousins that were like brothers to me because it was right. a lot of us around the same age so it was like 
even the ones that were older, they were a year or two older, and we were running behind them trying to play and stuff like that. So that was the kind of the, the environment over there in Cooper Park where, where I grew up with my cousins and then different friends. And we literally, we would get out of school from Whistler and the park was a block away. And, you know, we have our backpacks, not even go home. We at the park playing at the playground before we go to my grandmother's house who was right there on the 118th and Troop. So it was like everything was right there. And, and that was really how I grew up playing ball. Yeah. What'd your parents do for a living? My pops and my mom both worked for CTA. My mom, I lost my mom in um, seventh grade. Yeah. And um, but my pops still, he worked, he drove the CTA trains for 39 years. He didn't even, Whoa. even when I made the league, he didn't allow me to retire him until way after. I was really? Almost, yeah, I was That's... almost out the league before he allowed me to retire him. <laughs> huh. Yeah, you mentioned your mom. I know you wrote a Players Tribune story and it was really moving how you had one year. There's a couple years in your life when I was doing the research for this that really stood out. And 92 was one of them. Your mom died of breast cancer. Your mm -hmm. grandma died of natural causes. And then your brother Bernard, who was 23 at the time, was shot and killed. Yeah. That's a whole lot to go through in seventh grade. What do you remember yeah. about what you had to tell yourself to like power through, but maybe what other people were telling you about having those things happen all in a row? Uh, I just remember, I can remember firmly, like once, you know, my mom was, my mom was the last one of the three. And when she passed, I can remember totally like shutting down. Cause it was like, you gotta understand the dynamic. My, my sister was in college. So she had a job and she was in college. My older brother, he was there, but he was in high school getting ready to go leave for the Navy. My brother Lee, my pops and I was driving to CTA. He would get up at four in the morning and he wouldn't get back until about four or five. So. Nobody knew, you know what I'm saying, what I was doing. I was just right. like, I was just sitting there like, all right, I wasn't going to school at first. My grade school coach, Mr. Gary Adams, he passed recently a couple of years ago. But he was really the one who got me like up off the couch and like, all right, come on. He would show up to my house every morning, just blow the wow. horn. And I look out the window and he and, you know, I would finally after probably about a probably about two weeks of him doing it, came outside and talked to him. He like. What are you gonna do? He like you can't you can't do this you know forever and it's that and third and I was like, well you know whatever he like well I'm gonna keep showing up until you know what I'm saying you come on and you go. So then probably maybe a day or two later I went and you know what I'm saying when I I felt like when I got to basketball practice and stuff like that I, that was like the only time where I really wasn't thinking about everything that was going on. That was the one time where okay I could once I got the plan and got the hoop and I really lost myself in the hoop and it wasn't really thinking about nothing else. So that's what made me go back to school that uh, during that period of time and get back to basketball. But before that, I was just like, you know, 12 years old. I didn't know what the hell was going on. All I was right. like, what's happening? Like, I can't believe all this is happening at once. And then, you know, seeing what it's doing to my family and stuff like that, that was tough. Yeah. And I think it's a cliche, but for good reason for a lot of people that that thing that they're passionate about whether it's music or sports or whatever, just getting back into it when you're in those tough times can actually really save you. Um, yeah. it, it, and it's true. You end up at Whitney Young Magnet School in Chicago. Great place for basketball. A lot of great players have come out of there. But uh, you talk about how people would treat you differently when you came to play other schools, including stuff like throwing locks at you on the court. Like, yeah. that's wild. Take me back to, like, what was it like being at Whitney Young? Listen, Whitney Young, you got to understand, when we got there, like, I came as a sophomore, so I went to Brother Rice for my freshman year. Then I transferred. But, but uh, the year before, my uh, my best friends, Cordell Henry and Dennis Gates, they went there straight straight away. They went there as freshmen, played against Kevin Garnett and Ronnie and Fields and all of that. So 
when I get there my sophomore year, you know, they were still known. Whitney Young was known as the academic school, you know, the magnet mm-hmm. school, the, you know, kind of the nerd school or whatever. And so they hadn't, we hadn't won anything as far as like in the city. And then we planned in the Red West, which is like the toughest, you know, league in the city. And um, we had to go play the, like the lock thing happened at Orr. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it was like, and you know, we all, the thing that was crazy about my team and my class, six out of the seven main players, we were all from the South side playing on the West side, you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Playing in the Red West. But so we started the whole, you know, before we got there, they was looking at us like, yo, they not, you know, they, these is nerds, these is, these is good kids, about to get good grades, but they didn't realize it like, yeah, we all of that you saying, we good kids and about to get good grades. We got a great GPA across the board on our team. <laughs> yeah. But we different. Like we could really hoop. And like however you want to hoop. And the thing that we had in our favor is that myself, Cordell, and Dennis Gates, we all played since seventh grade together. We played AAU with, with Larry Butler on the Illinois Warriors. So we had, you know how it is, it's kind of one of those things that continuity that we had yeah. was gonna supersede a lot. And I mean like I was a McDonald's All-American, but Dennis and Cordell was great in their own right. Cordell went to Marquette, Dennis Gates went to Cal, you know what I'm saying? He's now coaching. And like both of those guys were, were great players in their own respect. So with, with that continuity, we were able to dominate once we got there. You won the state title. I mean, that's beyond just being a little bit unexpected and, and better than than they thought. Uh, 98, you win it all. You're actually, uh, years later, named one of the 100 legends of the IHSA, Illinois High School Association basketball tournament. What do you remember about, I mean, that's pretty good of all the of all the times that's been contested for you to, your performance to stand out as, as one of the best ever. I'll tell you the truth. To be honest, when I look back at it myself, Dennis and Cordell, we when we lost our junior year, senior year was a foregone conclusion. I'm <laughs> I'm not even like that. Like when we won it, it's like obviously we were excited, we were happy, and we were. But the one we wanted was junior year, because mm. that was like because when we came back, everybody we were number one. Everybody expected that. We wanted the one that no one expected, and that was the one that, that hurt the most. Like because we felt like we could have got it, but we didn't. Obviously, we didn't get it done, but. We wanted the one junior year. Senior year was like, like our I can I can firmly remember because me and Cordell was laughing. D Gates was Dennis Gates was crying. I'm like, you crying for it, bro? Like, like we knew this was happening. Yeah. Like we knew this That's was confidence. happening. Like, yeah, like we got to a point because I think we lost one game that season. We lost to like Lexington Catholic, and I can remember being upset after the game, and that the, the, you know the press was was asking this not, and I said, I said, hey, we ain't losing no more. And then they were like, wait, are you trying to say? Called your shot. I said, you can say however you want. I said, we not losing no more. We weren't supposed to lose the game. I remember my coach, Coach Stan, George Stan, he came to me. He was like, you can't be doing this. I'm like, what you mean? He's like, 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 I understand if you feel like you can handle it, but you're putting pressure on your team. I said, man, they with me. We good. (laughs) You know, every game that it was a big game, they would try and come up. And and, and I can remember my pops. He was like, you shouldn't have said that. And he kind of made me want to recant. But every time I wanted to do it, it was like the media, the way they came at me, they kind of antagonized me and made me harder with it. I'm a 16, 17-year-old kid. I'm like, nah, nah, we we not losing. So I'm doubling down and tripling down. (laughs) That's great. So who'd you lose to junior year? We lost to, did we use the manual downstate? I think we lost to, I think we lost to, uh, 
Did we lose? Yeah, I think we lost to Peoria Emanuel downstate. We won city. We won city back to back, and we went yeah. downstate. But I think we lost to Peoria Emanuel with, with Frank Williams, Sergio McClain, yeah. and uh, Marcus Griffiths, and all of them. They, they, you know, that was Sergio's fourth year in a row winning state. How did you decide to go to DePaul and stay here in Chicago? Man, it came down to Kansas and DePaul, and like you just got through saying, you know, all that I went through with my family, and then you know, at that point. My brother was just returning, you know, home from the Navy and stuff like that. So I'm like, man, the family is here. Like, they'll be able to come to, you know, damn near all of my games. Even the games not in DePaul, you know, we going to St. Louis, Marquette, very close cities where they can travel easily and come see me play. So that was really what overwhelmingly. And then the fact that, like, I knew that what what we were doing, you know, with Bobby and Lance going there and they had committed before me in the talk that, you know, they hadn't had three guys that highly ranked from the city since Mark Aguirre and Terry Cummings and those type of guys and the excitement that we had going on with that. I was excited about that too. I'm a Chicago kid. Yeah. I mean, it is awesome to be somewhere where your whole family can come support you. And when you take that next big step, you've got that support system, particularly having gone through what you did. I wonder, um, you know, being in Chicago um, in the years after your brother was murdered and you're trying to carry on, you know, the expectations for you as a basketball player and going to college and everything else. Um, did you get caught up ever in wanting to avenge that? Was there, did you, did you find out who it was and was it something that like you could ever put away or does it constantly remind you when you don't leave the city that it happened in? Nah. So for me, with, the, with my brother Bernard, I was so young that I was, you know, it was no way, you know, that happened when I was 12. It was no way by the time I was even, you know, when I became a teenager, 16, 17, especially going through high school and getting to college, that was so far gone that it was, it was, it wouldn't even make sense for me to be trying to avenge that or, or something like that. But with my brother Lee, it's funny because, you know, I'm, I'm in the NBA, I'm 26 years old and I obviously, have access to certain things and I'm, I have finances for certain things. And I had a chance to, to really do something like that. And it came down to a situation where I was like, I don't want that on my heart. Like whatever, right. you know, whatever they got coming to them is going to come like, you know what I'm saying? Without me doing a thing. And like, I know that my brother wouldn't want me to do something like that more importantly. So, you know, I didn't do it, but I literally had a chance to. Yeah. Yeah, because I know a lot of people, things like that happen, family tragedy, and sometimes they actually want to leave the city where it happened and, and have a fresh start. But for you, it was really important to have that continuity with the family that you had, especially with your brother um, coming home. So tell me about being at DePaul. Uh, you know, you you were tremendous there. Only player in school history with 1,000 points, 500 boards, 100 three-pointers. You obviously, you know, were continuing to excel. It felt like the NBA was certainly on the way. So... How does that go down with friends and family in the city? I mean, was it was it raucous? Was it crazy? Was it did you have the embarrassing family that were super loud? Did you have the kind of quiet, confident ones? Like it was all love for me, man. I had all of that. I had all of that. Like when I say I had cousins that showed up and yeah. you know, yell at the security that they need to be <laughs> going this way because Q Rich is my cousin and that's my cousin. <laughs> and you know, my pops and my you know, my pops and my immediate family would kind of be, you know, chill and you know, kind of re- with re- like still like I, I, I loved all of that, man. I had cousins, you know, family, my immediate family, all with a lot, of many, many friends coming and going. So for me, it was just like this is this was what it was all about. I was playing, 
you know, some of the best teams in Cincinnati and different, you know, we played Duke at the United Center. I got my whole family there and it's like the biggest game in, you know, Chicago, you know, college basketball history. And it's like, we doing this at Little DePaul when they said we couldn't. Yeah. We playing all of the teams. We playing Kansas. We playing DePaul. So I was getting, I mean, um, Duke. So, so I was getting that same exposure that everybody was trying to sell me on the, the school yeah. that was trying, like I was getting that, but I was getting it right here at the crib. I could leave a game against Duke and go to my pop's crib and really chill. <laughs> like, you know what I'm yeah. saying? And like, like that was a regular thing for me. So like that was, and then I could see them immediately at the game. They could see me and, and experience all of that with me. So like, that was the real icing on the cake for me. Well, I wonder if that set you up okay for the NBA because then you've spent your whole life in Chicago. You didn't even go to like Illinois or Indiana. Like you didn't right. even go somewhere close. Like you stayed in the city and then you get drafted number 18 by the Clippers. So it's all the way across the country and it is a totally different lifestyle, totally different, you know, scene out there as someone who lived in LA for six years, like there's culture shock when you get out there. So you only spend two years in college before you get drafted. So tell me about, you know, were you excited about the Clippers first of all? And then when you got there, what did you expect? I was initially, I was upset because I felt like I was a, you know, a higher pick than 18, but, you know, I dealt with that. And it was like, I looked at it as an opportunity because I knew that they were like, they had the worst record in the NBA the season before that. And it was like, they got three high first round picks for a reason. So it's like, right. you know, like we don't gonna get a chance to go in here and play. So for me, I was excited as far as, you know, LA is a thing. Like I had only been out here one other time. We played UCLA uh, in, when I was in college and we came out here to play UCLA. But I didn't really get a chance. You know, you you in college, you don't get to do nothing. Right. So it's like this was my first time touching down. They flew us private from the draft. Like me and D Miles was at the draft. They flew us in private. Like this is the first time we on a private jet. Like we didn't know how to act. Like I'm like you couldn't have told us that we wasn't like you know we we thought we was Martin Lawrence and Will Smith and Bad Boy. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get right back to the interview, but first, what is your favorite word? Fun. Fun. Okay. So the, the way we see it, diversion, amusement, mirthful sport came about in around 1727. But before that, it originally meant a cheat or trick circa 1700 from the verb fun in the 1680s, which meant to cheat or hoax. Uncertain origin, but they think it might be a variant of the Middle English fawnen, which means befool. So this actually kind of makes sense because that older meaning is sort of preserved in some sayings that we still use, like to make fun of from 1737, funny money, 1938 counterfeit bills. That might be more about the rhyme, but that's wild. I've never thought like why to make fun of means something mean, but that totally checks out with that original meaning of um, cheating or fooling or hoaxing. Good one. Speaking of great words. You got learn today. The word of the week, this one goes out to Pablo Torre. He rolled this word right off his tongue effortlessly in a mid-sentence in a recent episode of ESPN Daily. So I texted him props for the flawless inclusion of the word synecdoche. And he admitted that he actually should have used the word metonym. You could Google the difference between a synecdoche and a metonym, but we'll dive into synecdoche here. So it's a figure of speech in which a part is taken for the whole or vice versa, from the late 15th century, uh, from medieval Latin and from the Greek synecdoche, the putting of a whole for a part, 
an understanding one with another, quite literally, a receiving together or jointly. So a synecdoche is typically when you take an attribute or an adjunct and then you substitute it for the whole thing. So look at those suits over there. Suits being a synecdoche for businessmen. Wheels for a car. Mouths, as in hungry mouths to feed. Hired hand for a worker. You are not, of course, hiring just their hands. They are a worker, but you call them hands. So in a sentence, the captain commands 100 sails is a synecdoche that uses sails to refer to ships, ships being the thing of which a sail is a part. So see if you could pull a Pablo and effortlessly drop into a sentence. Uh, well, of course, that is a synecdoche for. Please note, this is not the same as Schenectady, the city in New York. It is not the same as Schenectady, New York. Okay, just wanted to get that out there. Now let's get back to the interview. So you, you get drafted, you move to LA, and you actually, you and Darius Miles were in a documentary chronicling your first three seasons with the Clippers called The Youngest Guns. Uh, I love that like you guys got drafted together, you did the doc together, now you're doing the podcast together. This is a lifelong bromance that we have here. <laughs> but tell me about that documentary. Have you seen it recently? Are there like cringe moments when you look back at uh, your young self? Oh man, it is not good. It is not good. It's hilarious to watch, though. Like you say, when you look at it, especially now, you're so much older, and you look at the stuff that you thought was cool, the stuff right. that you were doing, the way that you was dressing, acting, talking, everything, the way we sounded, it's, it's, it's hilarious. It's just, I remember it all, too, because it was like, I can remember when they came to us, like, yo, these guys, they want to do, because, you know, obviously we would come to L.A. and it was a kind of a turning point. Because, like I say, our team was kind of unique in the sense that we were the first real team that has five, six, seven core, core guys that were all, like, under 21, 22 years right. old. I mean, really, three picks in the top 18 is it's a lot. Yeah, and you had an 18-year-old coming out of there. Darius was the highest pick ever out of high school at that point. You know, the years following, Kwame went number one and things like that. But before that... Darius was the highest one to ever go and the youngest one. And then I was 19. Keon was 19. Corey was 19. Mm -hmm. LO was 19. Like, it was like the whole team was 18, 19, 20. <laughs> and so it was like the guys, they were interested in doing the, um, doing the doc. And, you know, they got in touch with our agent and we worked it out. They, they literally were around for, like you say, it was crazy. Three years. We went, they followed us overseas after the first season. We went to like Paris and all of these different places, Germany. Like we saw Tony Parker when he was coming up. No way. Like That's when he wild. was like, yeah, before he really like exploded, exploded. When we went over there for that Nike trip, he was on it. Like he was a Nike kid. So like, he was all array. They was like, he's going to be this. And like, sure, sure enough, he came and he, he did it. You mentioned Corey Maggetti, um, who was on the Clippers when you got there. Um, he joined at the same time. Another Chicago guy. He was the one that, especially because I grew up in Lake Forest, you know, we played Oak Park in field hockey. Yeah. So we would always be hearing about Corey Maggetti and how great he was. Um, did you guys have an instant bond because of Chicago or was there a rivalry there from when you'd played against each other? See, the thing that, that people don't know a lot about me and Corey, me and Corey played against each other for the first time in sixth grade. Whoa. So like, 
me and him go way, way back. back. Like it's like <laughs> playing against each other. Then we you fast forward to fifteen under uh, fifteen year old. We go to the national championship playing for the Warriors. He played with my team. We went to the we went on. Oh, won so you were national. AAU together? Okay. Yeah, we went and yeah, we went and won the nationals. Then like after that, he went and joined a different team, and so we were back opponents again. Then. You go to high school, we played against each other in the city suburban shootout at Northwestern. Then, like, we were number one, they were number two then. And yep. me and Corey were like 1A, 1B players. And, and then he's at Duke, like you said. And then we play against <laughs> each other. So, like, like that's like, and like, that's really like my brother. Like, we got a, got a bond. It's like crazy. Like, I'll see him while I'm here now. And it's like, we went and played for the power in the big three and won a championship. Yeah. Like he was the captain of that team. He came and called me like, yo, bro, I need you to come play. I'm like, all right. You know, like me and Corey, like our families, our families are tight. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, that's really like somebody that's like family to me. And like, that was like the early outset of it. Like when we got to the Clippers and the crazy part, like you say, he was joining the team. Like as I was walking up on the stage to shake David Stern's hand, they were announcing that trade across the PA. Amazing. Corey Maggetti and Derek Strong was being traded from the Magic to the Clippers. And I was like, this is crazy. Because I knew Keon made you. Obviously, I knew Darius since he was in seventh, eighth grade. I was in ninth, tenth grade. And it was like, I was like, man, it's about to be like, that's that's one. That's like four of us that we all know each other. Where it's about to be like coming in, we're going to be able to lean on each other and experience stuff together. So that was Yeah, that makes that move a whole lot easier to go across the country and to be in the pros all of a sudden at that, at that young age. Um, how long into your uh, career, how long after you got drafted, did you sign with team Jordan? Cause you were one of the first and you've been a lifer for team Jordan. Well, that's the blessing, man. We <laughs> literally, so we got drafted and uh, over the summer, like MJ, he doesn't have it anymore, but every summer, like August 1st to August 10th, he would have his uh, fantasy camp for kids out in Santa Barbara where they can, you know, it'd be thousands of kids come and they some stay overnight. Some are just day campers where they stay in the hotel with their kids and they with their parents and they drop them off back and forth. But they what he would do, he would have normally like the top college players around uh, the country come there and be counselors for. You yeah. know what I'm saying? They would be counselors. So after the after the day you would do the counselors games and it would be, you know, intense pickup games with high competition. So me and D had done that coming up through the circuit when I was when I was in DePaul and when he was a top player in the country, he did it. And so we were like, you know, we got dragged. We both had been there together previously. And so we was like, man, let's go to, uh, you know, we had got to L.A. and we was out in L.A. working out. We was like, man, let's go down to Jordan camp. You know, they're going to have, you know, it's going to be the who's who of their plan. We get right. the runs in. So we go down there. And at that point, they were, you know, our agent was negotiating our deal. Jeff Wexler was going back and forth with the Nike and, you know, everything. But at the time, you know, and one was a big deal. And they were trying mm-hmm. to flash So they had, like, they had just sent us, like, crazy boxes of stuff. So we we mash out. We go down there to Santa Barbara with all this and one stuff on. So we get through with the runs one day. And MJ, like, you know what? I thought y'all were Nike guys. Like, why y'all got this? <laughs> like, why y'all got on this junk? And we, like... <laughs> You know, we go to explain kind of what's going on, and they was just like, "Y'all don't worry about it. Like, y'all gonna be with me." And so nice. he, he like, "Y'all get rid of all this stuff." So we like, we didn't really know what that meant, but we was just like, "Man, jealous said it." So you know, what I'm saying? yeah, exactly. Right. If Jordan's in, we're in. Right. So you know, the next day, our agent called us and he tell us like, "Yo, you know, you're gonna be with with, with Jordan, with Jordan, and he's gonna have like a, a team of guys." And I'm like, "Okay, like you're gonna get all the Jordan gear." We like, oh, but like when we really 
we didn't understand it till like all of them boxes started arriving. Yeah. Like when I say it was it was something we had never experienced. It's a dream. Right. You looking at a kid is from the South Side who pops didn't buy me joints. The first mm-hmm. pair of joints I ever received was from Larry Butler, my AU coach. <laughs> I was playing ball and we were now sponsored by Nike. Before that, never had any joints in my life. Not even a hand me down pair. None. Wow. That's amazing. What a cool way to, to like feel like you made it to. Now you're in the league with all your guys and Jordan's got you decked out in all the gear. And the um, best is that still like today, like they he, Jordan Brand takes care of you. Like I get to get my kids Jordan stuff and all. Oh, I've and heard you. your collection is like legendary. <laughs> Did you figure out how old are how old are your sons? Because I I read you said you need at least one of them to be a size 15 so they could take advantage of all your shoes. Yeah. So. So the eighteen year old was a thirteen and a half. My stepson Caleb. I don't he's, know if he's, he's, he's at home put like layering he, up socks. He's, he's, he's got he can pull it. He can pull socks on. He could pull that one off if he really wanted to go there. But <laughs> I know my 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 boy is six and five. QJ and crew. I, they they gonna be bigger than fifteens at some point. Oh yeah. They, they'll be yeah. They. How tall is their mom? She's about five seven five seven. I think. All right. But Cruzy came out. He didn't even wear a newborn diaper. He went straight to size one. Okay. All right. So we got a shot. We got a, and no chance your daughter goes to a men's fifteen. Unfortunately for her. No, nah, but she's only eight and she wears a women's seven. Okay. All right. So for her sake, I don't want her to fit into your shoes, but I hope she gets all the other good stuff that you know doesn't require her to wear a, a size fifteen. Oh, she runs um, the whole house. Believe that. Good. Good. I want to see. I want to see uh, all the ballers out of the Richardson household, not just the dudes. Um, <laughs> so you spend the first couple of years with the Clippers. You end up signing as a free agent with the Suns, and this is another one of those years. You know, '92 was marked by a lot of tragedy for you as you were coming up. Um, it feels like it's '04-'05 season. First of all, you're you're balling out. You've got a new Suns single season record for three pointers, passing. Dan Marley, who like that's who we always think about Thunder as like Dan. the man, Thunder Dan. Yeah. Like you still think about that. You go to you go to Arizona, he's still got the restaurants and everything. Yeah. Like he's larger than life out there. So you break Dan Marley's record. You're co-leading the league with Corver and Threes. Uh the Suns, you know, great record. Go to the Western Conference Finals. And you're engaged to Brandy. Okay, so this is like you are balling on the court and off. And at that time, like I feel like there was not a lot of people. Was was that still peak Brandy, or is it like a couple years after she was like that boy is mine? I can't remember. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. You you got to pretend like you don't remember. Let me see. What year was that boy is mine? Brandy <laughs> and Monica. For those who don't remember, ninety eight. Okay. All right. So this is a couple years, couple years after like the peak Brandy fame. But she's. I mean, she's obviously still. Tell me about that. That's like a whole different kind of lifestyle than just being a, an NBA player when you cross over to Hollywood? No, nah, I wouldn't say so. I mean, she was, she was cool. It was down to earth and regular. It wasn't, it wasn't, it was cool. It was regular. All right. I'll let you off the hook on that one. I'm looking I mean, at your face. I, I, like, I mean that in a good way. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, like any of yeah, the. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. crazy Hollywood. It was just like two people who, who liked each other. Yeah. All right. So you were engaged for over a year. You, you break up in 05. So, you know, you're playing great basketball. Your team is doing really well. And at the end of that year is when the next tragedy happens. You've got all these great things happening for you. And you mentioned earlier, your brother Lee gets murdered. And that was just like a freak robbery, right? Just an accident that he got caught up in. 
Yeah, so basically the guys was like on like I guess like a kind of robbing type spree, and um, my my brother and my pops were going back to the whole the old house that we grew up in because my pops was moving to the new house that we got them. So they were going to you know get stuff and move stuff back and forth. And the way the house was set up, the, the garage wasn't attached. So when they pulled into the garage and came out, it was like a little kind of like a little gangway in between the house and yeah. there. But the guys were waiting there with the guns drawn on. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my brother, he's a, you know, he was in the Navy, so <laughs> he's done this before where he's disarmed people and this, that, and third, and he got the gun from one of the guys. Wow. The other guy shot him. Because mm. it was like, you know, he was, he felt like, I feel like he felt like he he had to protect himself and my pops. I don't know what he would did if my pops wasn't there, but my pops right. was there too, so. You know what I'm saying? My pops, it was crazy. My pops, the jacket he was wearing, he had a he had a bullet hole through him, but he didn't get hit. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. So going through that again, do you handle it better the second time because you know how to handle grief? Or do you feel like, how the f*** does this happen to me twice? Like, this is so unfair. Yeah, I would say, like I say, hindsight is twenty twenty. Looking back at it as a, as a 26-year-old, I, I would say I handled it probably worse. I would say as a youngin', you know what I'm saying? It was only so much you could do. When you when you 26 years old and you like, NBA player and you got millions at your fingertips, like I just drank. Yeah. Literally, like literally, like that. If you go and look, that was when I gained weight in the NBA. Like that had nothing to do with eating. Yeah. <laughs> Everything to do with alcohol. And I didn't, you know what I'm saying? It was like I was in a place where I didn't even see it. Yeah. Like I didn't even see like when I like cause I can I can remember it. It was like when I got traded from the Knicks to the Heat and I got to Miami in the summer. Like I can remember the first thing that happened when I got to the when I when I got to this how gangster Pat Riley was. When I first got to the arena, <laughs> like I land in the airport, you know, usually you about to go get take to the hotel, they drop your bags out. Do we didn't go to no hotel, no, we came straight from the airport to the arena. So I come in the locker room, I got my bag, and he was like, uh, Bill, Bill Ferrin, he was a stream coach. He can he was standing there waiting on me. He was like, he was like, he was like, Pat wants you to do bathing body fat. He was like, strip down to your boxes. <laughs> and I was just like, You're like, I just got here. Like, You're not bro, gonna I'm, take me to lunch at the Fontaine like, Blue like, and show me some cool beach spots. So I go, I go, that's what they do. The first thing they do is weight and body fat. He write it down on his little, they got, he got the stickies. He write it down on his little sticky and he sent it upstairs. So now I'm getting back dressed and this, that, and third. He's like, all right, when you get back dressed, you know, Pat's waiting for you upstairs. Real wow. Godfather vibes. You go in there, it's the offices. It's like, it's, it's like the light just over him. It's kind of dark everywhere else. And you talking to him. And I'm like, yo, this is crazy. But like, it was like, literally, like when I got there and it was like, whatever mask or funk was over me, it was like, it, it got pulled from over me. And I was like, looking at myself like, man, how the hell you get like this? Mm. And I can never, like, like I, I can't remember exactly how much it was, but I lost like, like 47, 48 pounds, 50 pounds, something like six weeks. It was crazy. So you had injuries with the Knicks in addition to obviously, you know, dealing with the off the court stuff. So yeah, you end up with the heat. So this is, this is wild too. So I want to hear about what this day was like for you. So it's 2009 draft day. <laughs> You're traded from the Knicks to the Grizzlies for Darko Milicic. Right. But you're only technically on the Grizzlies for three weeks before you're traded 
to the Clippers in exchange for Zach Randolph, but you're only with the Clippers for three days before you're traded to the Timberwolves. And then a month later, you're traded to the Heat. Right. Now, what's going through your mind? And are you like, damn, everybody kind of wants me? Or are you like, damn, <laughs> nobody wants me enough to keep me? So this was the thing, headed into the summer, like my agent, Jeff Flexer, he's, he's one of the best in the business. I know this in hindsight now because people, these type of things happen to people and they don't understand why. Jeff told me it was a high probability of me getting traded. This was the summer of D-Way, LeBron, Bosh, all of those guys, the big free agent summer where everybody was trying to get, they was trying to get those expiring contracts. So I forgot the, about that. So like went, teams were down to like one person on the roster just so they could make space in case that's yes, where they all wanted they to go. Trying to do, they, that's, they were trying to get all of these. No, I'm talking about going into that summer. The season okay, going okay. into that summer, they were trying to, everybody was trying to like position. They were trying to get all, everybody wanted these big expiring contracts. Like, so I had, I can't remember, I want to say it was like 11 or 12 million that I was making that year that would be coming off the books, freeing up cash space. So that, that yeah. was attractive to, to, to teams. And that was the big reason why I was like, boom, you're going here. I, now he didn't, nobody could predict that I was going to go as many places, but after the first, <laughs> after the first two, he was like, all right. Cause when the first one happened, he, he told, he was like, I don't know if this is, he was like, I don't know if they may move you again. And then like it happened, then he told yeah. me, he like, you're definitely going to be moved again. You're not staying here. And after the third one, he was like, "Don't worry." He was like, I'm, "He was like, I'm working on it, and, I'm, and you know, we'll we'll we gonna we gonna see what we are gonna get you settled." But like, you're not gonna be in in uh, Minnesota. Minnesota. Like, Did you even like unpack? I never went anywhere. I went. I went to. Uh, I went to Memphis and I went to L.A. That was it. Then I obviously when once the Miami deal was consummated and stuff, I showed up there and I like Okay. I, so this was a lot of like moving you around but not actually showing up and practicing and all that stuff. Because nah, it was all it was all off season. Yeah, at one point I like I remember tweeting laughing about it, like, you know, this is like okay, I'm I'm interested what's gonna, gonna be next, like as a joke, <laughs> because it was you know, it was hilarious at that point. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay, so you ended with the with the heat. Once you got there and you were there for a while, would you still view Pat Riley as Godfather esque? Like, was that the vibe for the whole time, or did it change like when you got to know him? Yeah, I mean, I think it was still like I, I still look at it as like Godfather esque because I feel like the the, the, the organized organization is you know from Mickey on down is ran like a family, and they are who they are because of that the way they run their business. And it's a lot of kind they always say. No, it's, a, it's <laughs> like you have to really be in it to understand it and to know that it's a real deal. And, you know, people will say, oh, it's cliche to say this, but like it's 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 not a secret that, you know, it's a common denominator in what's going on mm -hmm. over there. It's the way that they have that continuity from top to bottom. And, and like I said, I was only there for one season and the respect and the, and the uh, uh, you know, admiration I got for the way they do things and for, yep. for Riley to from Mickey to Big Andy to to Nick to man to to Spo and the whole gang and the way that he you know I love the way that they keep bringing on you know everybody they add is somewhat been a part of their culture before so yeah you know, they doing Malik Allen and Karan Butler those appears in mind is is getting a chance to learn in the, in the best take best case scenario because. You, you go to a lot of these other organizations and you you move your family to work there. And, you know, we we used to being paid millions of dollars. Right. And when a lot of guys take these positions, it's for 100, 250, mm -hmm. 200, you know, you moving your family, 
you need some type of stability. Like, I feel like when you go and you take that leap of faith with the Miami Heat, you're not about to be there for a year. Like, if you go in there right. and you're doing your job and you're working hard and doing what you're supposed to do, you're not about to be there for a year and then the whole staff get fired and you got to figure stuff out. Right. You know what I'm right. Like, that's not going to happen there. So I feel like, you know, they do things the right way. And when people get a chance to be, in, be a part of that, it's a blessing. Have you been watching Winning Time? Because I'm wondering, from my perspective, and I've spent a little bit of time with Pat Riley. I hung out him for actually about an hour at like Dan Lebitard's wedding. He and I really hit it off. So we were talking for a while. Super nice dude. He and his wife are super nice. Uh, how do you feel about Adrian Brody? Because from afar, I'm like, that's pretty good. He's doing a good job. Yo, I've, I've watched that show. And like out of everybody, I felt like, you know, that they were probably kind of fair to him but like yeah i've watched the show but i'm like yo, <laughs> like, yo. they gotta keep putting it to being like this is a sensationalized fictionalized version based Ooh. on mostly truth but yeah not everybody's getting uh, escaping as unscathed as, as pat riley is that's for sure i agree 100 percent. it's oh. like yo, this is kind of this is like on the wild side it's yeah <laughs> i had adam mckay on my podcast right before it started and now i'm like oh, i want to have him back and be like yeah tell me now about the reaction because it's been pretty crazy i don't know if he even anticipated quite the way that people would be going yeah, after him it's, it's a like i think it's a good show it's entertaining until i think like what if that was you like right <laughs> like, damn. right like, i'm right. like oh, man it's like i shouldn't like this show like this yeah like I like I like Spencer Haywood's reaction where he's like, you've been watching Winning Time. All of it is true. <laughs> Except you don't know how good my numbers are. Here they are. I'm in the Hall of Fame. And you're like, oh, okay. Some serious shit went down. And Spencer's like, yeah, it's cool. That's what happened. Um, all right. So you're you're at the Miami. You end up um, the Magic and the Knicks. And, and when it's time to wrap up, was it like no brainer that you wanted to get into some front office stuff and work in the game? Or, or how'd you end up with the Pistons? Man, listen, I had no clue. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I was still like, uh, uh, I had got, I had got, what was that? That was 2013. Got cut at the beginning of the year after training camp with the Magic got cut. I'm thinking like, cool, like, all right, you know, I'm going to clear waivers, go sign a vet minimum somewhere, do a little double dip. I'm going to be cool. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Hopefully I can get with a contender, get a chance to compete. I'm like, man. One week go by, two week go by, a month. I'm sitting here. I'm like, Jeff, what the hell? He like, man, listen, I let you know. I'm like, uh, so I'm getting mad. I'm getting frustrated. Then it's just like, you know, like I think one of the biggest things that was happening then, my wife was pregnant with my daughter, and this my, you know, this is my first. Like I got my stepson. This is like my first kid that I'm really like there right. forever. I'm like, yo. So that kind of had me like occupied and kept me like, you know, kept me sane. I feel like I was like, yo, like this is bull, <laughs> like. But then finally, like at the end of the season, I'll never forget it was crazy because my birthday is April 13th. I had, I'm sitting there like, all right, cool. It's the end of the season. Ain't number two, three days left in the season. Ain't nobody going to sign me. I'm going to go go out to L.A. for my birthday. We rented a house, rent a house, a little Airbnb or whatever. I'm out there for one day. I never forget because I went. This is when um, Steve Nash was with the Lakers. I went out. We went out to the club. They had a game that night. We went out to the club with him, Chris Duhon, and, and Earl and uh, Earl Clark. They was all from you know Earl and C. Do had played with me with the Magic, but then when they joined him, I played obviously with, with Steve and Phoenix. So we go out, get up in the morning. My agent called me crazy early. I'm like, do not do this, Jay. He like, yeah. He like, yeah. The Knicks wants you like the Knicks wants you to come. I think they were like on a road trip in Portland or something. He was like, they want you to come fly to 
fly to Portland and work out. I'm like, all right. So then, because you remember this year, the Knicks were they were the number one seed. They had yeah. this, had Tyson, Melo, J Kid, all of the all these guys, Candy. So I'm like, all right, cool. So first thing I do, I get I'm like in the in the house in like the hills or whatever. So I get up, go put my headsets in, we go go run. Like let me go run this alcohol. Yep, yep. <laughs> so while I'm running, literally my agent calls back like 30 minutes. Like he like, all right, so. They don't want you to come fly there. They trust you. They say if you say you're in shape, you know they know you from your your thong time there. They say just we're just gonna have them come to New York and we're gonna sign them for the rest of the season. So I'm like, all right, I stopped back to partying. Not even back to party. I just stopped running and turned around because <laughs> I'm already know. I'm like, all right, they about to have me leave like today or the next day. Yeah. So it ain't like it was like, but I'm not about to keep running right now. Like, right. Like, right. Turn around, went back. But it was like, yeah, that was like, so then went through that series, the playoffs with them, and uh, we lost to Indiana that year. And that was like, that whole experience for me was like, you know, I was kind of taking it all in, like, because I didn't know. I felt like this could probably definitely be it after nobody calling the whole season long. Right. Then that summer came, and the same thing going on. I'm waiting. I knew I had to wait after everything anyway, so I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. And then, like, Stan called. And I had been, he called kind of before, he got what he got. He was just like, hey, I might get back into it. He was like, you know, I'd love to have you be a part of it. He was like, you know, I don't, you know, we could figure out what capacity because I don't know what you're thinking and what you want to do. Because at that yeah. time, I feel like I'm trying to hoop, bro. <laughs> like, yeah. But like, it came, it became clear to me, like, bro, it ain't, you know what I'm saying? That ain't really what it is <laughs> yeah. right now. And I didn't want to do the whole be sitting there trying to work out, wait for somebody to get hurt yeah. and, and all that stuff. I was like, I don't feel even comfortable like preparing in that way waiting on somebody to be hurt so i was like i didn't want no parts or none of that and the thing was crazy because people don't remember like stan was in the running for the for the, for the golden state gig first yeah and yeah, I was stan just, van gundy who's uh been on the pod yeah i was like oh man this might be my first little foray into it like it to go you know, because I, I, I mean, obviously this was prior to them hitting a great stride, but everybody yeah. knew, like when Mark left, that they were, they yeah. were on their way to be something. We didn't know they mm-hmm. were going to be dynastic, but we knew that they had a real good shot at being good. So I'm like, man, I'm like cool. And then it was like, you know, I'm because like I wasn't like talking to Stan the whole time he was going through the process, right. watching everything on TV. I seen mm-hmm. Detroit come sideways into that. I was like, what? Detroit? Was like, what is happening? <laughs> I was like, what? And then it was like, it came on like gangbusters. It was like, he going each other. I was like, oh. I was like, this is the worst. No disrespect, but like when you look at what, what uh, and I and I, I actually grew and had a different take on it prior to going to Detroit. I mean, right. after going to Detroit, but before going, I was like, "Yo, I had L.A., I had Phoenix, yeah, in New York, I had Miami and Orlando." I was like, "Detroit don't fit in this picture." Uh-huh. Well, in Chicago, people like I mean, I don't know. We always had that rivalry, you know, with with Michael and Isaiah and the Pistons growing up with the Bad Boys. It's always like a little hint of like that little r- rivalry with Detroit. Yeah, but see, for me, I feel like when I kind of like once I got in the NBA, all of that faded away for me. Yeah. So it became different. Because you bounced around a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It did. It, yeah. So it, it, that was different to me. But then, like I say, once I got to Detroit, I had a different respect for it. I had a different respect for the, you know, not only, you know, the, obviously the team and the city and everything, but the, but the city was actually nice. Like I stayed yeah. out in Bill Hills. It was real nice. So I was cool. I actually stayed in the same neighborhood as Aretha Franklin. 
Nice. Real talk, yeah. we got her mail before the high house. My wife thought she was going to get to meet her, and she met her granddaughter. That's she, a bummer. That's a bummer. You, like, time it till you see her. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you're director of player development for the Pistons for a bit. Um, you talked about being on the big three. You got recruited by your guy, Corey Maggette, to come back and play. Uh, tell me about what were there – any apprehensions? Were you like, I don't want to play if I'm not going to be my best ever? Or was it like, I miss it and I don't care if I'm not as good as I used to be? Yeah, for me, it wasn't about it wasn't about trying to be who who we were. I didn't feel like that's what the league was about or, yeah. or any of it. I felt it was about like getting back with the guys, playing, having a good time. And for me, my kids never got to see me play in no capacity. So for me, it was like, you know, cool. This is a setting yeah. where... It was kid-friendly. We was able to bring our kids literally in the locker rooms with us before. You know, like, shout out to Nancy Lieberman, one of the best coaches I ever had, and she did a I loved that. I love that the team coach by the woman was the one winning it all. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, listen, when I say, like, she did an unbelievable job. She took it serious. From day one, she said, listen, we're not in this for nothing but to win. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's saying, Mm -hmm. you're not here to win. I don't want you around here. And, like, that's how we're going to go about it. She she conducted it like a real thing. We had scouting reports, game plans, and, and we did all of those things. And we we, we had our, a lot of practice time. Our whole team showed up every time because that wasn't the case for every team. And we all of our guys we we bought in, and you know we we got it done. Are you done with the big three? You have any? Yeah, I haven't played. I didn't play. Uh, the it's been it's been two years. It's been at least. But you one. don't you don't, you're not itching to get back. No one could call you up and say, "Come on back." No. No. You're done now? No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not. No more competitive hoop for me. The next time you see me hooping, it'll be me beating up on one of my kids. Yeah. <laughs> you still got it, or is it starting to fall apart a little bit? Oh, Mark, see, the thing is, the jumper and shooting will never go anywhere. That's going to be like riding a bike. Yeah. I can remember when I played for the Heat. However, Mac, however old Mac, Bob McAdoo was, then he still could shoot right. the face off of whoever. Yep. Talk yep. trash. And I say, that's how I'm going to be when I get old. I'm going to be out here playing the current players or whoever. And as long as we stand still, I got a chance. <laughs> All right. So the shooting's always going to be there. It's the other. I remember I interviewed David Robinson a couple of years ago for something, and I, I thought I was being all clever, like, oh, how long ago was the last time you dunked? And he was like, this morning. Oh, and yeah. I was like, okay, cool. <laughs> My that's bad. Funny, that's, you know, that's yeah, he's so big. Yeah, that's a, you yeah. know. And he's only in his 50s. He's not like, there's some guy from the Bucks just, just made a video. Marcus Johnson. Yeah. And he still still got up. It was impressive. All right. So you've made the full transition to one of us, you know, gas bag media members. And I wonder when you were in the league, how did you feel about the media? Because I find a lot of the guys that complain the most about it are the ones who end up wanting to join. And I think part of the reason they complain is that they're smart. And they see some of the bullshit in, in sports media. So they call it out instead of just accepting it. And then also they're kind of like loud mouths and contrarians. And they realize that could be beneficial to a career in the media. Uh, but what about you? When you were back playing, were you? would you say you were easy to interview? Were you helpful to the media? I was easy to interview. I mean, I, I feel like I played in some of the biggest markets. I, I come from Chicago, was, you know, played high school and at a high level and then played college at a high level there then. Drafted to L.A., four years there, four years in New York. So, for me, I mean, I I was always going to handle them straight on, straight forward. I only know one way, be honest and, and yeah. deal with it like that. So, and I, and I like you say, I, I felt like I was smart when it came to the media. They weren't going to, you know, finesse me or, or try and maneuver me into doing something that I didn't want to do. 
no matter how many different ways they asked something, if I gave them something, it was because I wanted them to have it. Right. Like we're never going to lose another game. <laughs> you right. knew what you were doing. Uh, yeah. So now you do knuckleheads, which is such a fun listen. You guys are so enthusiastic and fun with your guests, and you could tell you really respect and love the people that you have on. How honest do you feel you can be in those? Because we just did this experiment on ESPN with Patrick Beverly, and we started to figure out some of the lines. Like, what's good for the game? Is it when people are super real honest or is it sometimes bad if they cross the line and they have like beefs? So when you do it, like how, how do you feel talking to former players about things that happened back in the day or now and how much you have to kind of think about what you want to share and what you want to keep private? So so our thing, when we first decided that this is what we were going to do and we like, okay, we agreed that this is what we're going to do a podcast and we want to talk to former players and we was like, we want to we want to represent them in a in a in a celebratory way in a yeah. fun way in a way like that we feel like we could access and we could talk about things that they and we will be willing to talk about because it's fun and it's positive and it's going to be showing us in a different way to you know show them to like hey these guys are human too they mm-hmm. they have look they do this they do that they crack jokes whatever it may be but no, at no point do you gotta worry about being blindsided. Like, yo, why y'all ask me that? Like, you know, what I'm saying? like none right. of that. We're here to celebrate you because we know that, like, we sit here as as former players, former athletes. We consume and watch everything. We on social media, watch TV, and we see it's plenty of people that's covering every single bad move that we make. Right, every single one at mm-hmm. nauseum. Like, it's not just mm-hmm. one one handle or one form of me, it's all across the board. If we do anything negative, it's going to be wham, every yeah. which way you look. So it's like, that's cool. So we want to take the opposite approach. And we going to, whenever we talk to whoever, we not, we not, you know, idiots or, or, or you know, not knowing that, that they have flaws or whatever, like anybody else, the same people that's writing all of these things. If you go and put a microscope over them, somewhere you can find something that's not For perfect. Sure. It's not perfect. So... My thing and, and these things like we just here that whoever we are, man, we here to have a good time, let you know you in a safe space. We about to kick it. We talking like we did when we were in the locker rooms or on the yeah. plane after games, or when we get together and hang out together as 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 peers. And this is a safe space for you. Like, and this is a point where you can feel celebrated. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Because we, we And that we, comes across for sure. Yeah, we bring I mean, obviously we wanna to talk to the Kobe's and the Shaqs and, and this and that, but like we still gonna to talk to to the people like us. They weren't however many times all stars or hall of famers or this or that because we weren't that and we realized that those people got some of the dopest stories and mean something to the game too because every hall of fame you can't have it without five of us regular guys right that's right and you got some great women's players on sue bird's one of my all-time faves she's been on the pod a couple times and Teresa witherspoon and folks like that so you love love to hear from them too it's a lot of fun and and you do make it clear, like it's easy for people listening to tell how much fun you guys are all having, how how it does feel like a good space for them to to let themselves come out and be be honest, be themselves, tell good stories. Um, it's awesome. Hey, uh, we're running out of time, but before you go, you do have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition speed round. Number one, your current career is canceled. You can't play basketball or do media. What job do you do instead? 
Uh, I'm gonna take it back to to the hood with it. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna go I'm gonna go landscaping. I was I was a fool in the hood. I was cutting la- I was cutting grass, sh- shoveling snow, raking leaves. I made love all the it. money. So I'm gonna take it to I landscaping. I love it. That's great. Uh, number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Probably when I think it was was I with the heat. The lightning struck the plane, oh. and we fell. I don't know how many oh. thousand feet, and no. then. Off the plane, you could see like the whole where lightning hit. It was like then, like I ain't never been scared like that. Like we Whoa. was on the plane. I'm like, I don't know what. <laughs> Look, it ain't know where to run. Ain't know where to hide. Were people nothing. like yelling out, like, "All right, oh, I'll admit it. Five everything. years ago, I did this." People <laughs> was praying and everything, like real talk, like for real. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Uh, number three, you could be the best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it? I'd want to be the best at making people laugh. Ah. Oh. That's a nice one. I like that. Uh, number four, what current celebrity from movies or TV or sports or politics would you most like to be your best friend? Uh, that's easy, The Rock. The Rock? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Have you met him yet? Nah, but The Rock, I mean, he like the most likable dude ever. <laughs> yeah. All right. We got to make this happen. I want to see that. Uh, number five, what's your biggest, uh, most meaningless pet peeve that you have? People making noise with their mouth when they eat food. Ugh, so gross. That's a good one. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Probably when I was way back in grade school and I had the uh I had the XJ nine hundred song and, and I got I got I was getting I was getting killed in the lunchroom. That's what that's what that was one of the things that like springboarded me into being able to cap and talk trash because I got I got capped on so hard and I never wanted to have that feeling again because I, I didn't have nothing for him. I was just sitting there. Like, did you wear him again? Nah. I mean, no. well, no. Unfortunately, I did because I, I didn't have a choice. I did have to wear him again, but I, I thought I thought you were saying that I say something bad, but at the time, no. I, I didn't say nothing back. I didn't have nothing to say back. And yes, yeah. I had to wear that was like That was one of the reasons I couldn't say nothing. Well, I realized now that I could have said something back, even though I had to keep wearing them. But at the right. time, I was shell shocked. Like everybody like, looking. Yeah. I'll laughing. just take it. All right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, number seven. What's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Being more structured. Okay. I gotta get better with my with my structure. Like and, your and schedule that. and how you spend your days. I'm terrible at scheduling. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, listen. Yes, scheduling. <laughs> Uh, number eight, any musician or band alive or dead can play your next party. Who is it? Oh man, alive or dead, Michael Jackson. A lot of people say that. Yeah. Yep. Uh, number nine, what would be, what would you consider your biggest failure? I would probably say when I started drinking after my brother Lee was killed, that would, that would probably be like, if I could go back, that's probably one of the biggest things I wish I could correct. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, number 10. Drinking. Should have, yeah. Did you eventually do that? Yeah, I, I still do therapy now. Yeah, that's good. That's good. It's hard to be judgmental of yourself during moments like that of like great grief. It's easy in hindsight to go back and say you wish you'd done it differently, but you got to yeah. get through all that stuff when it happens. And you know. 100%. And you found your way out of it, which some people don't, you know? Yeah. So, uh, number 10, what three individual words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Uh, selfless, uh, grateful, and confident. 
I love those. I love when people say grateful. It's so important. This was super fun. Thanks for doing this. I've like really loved getting to know you by having you on the show. And I think I saw you at the big three thing here in Chicago and a couple other places, but um, always a nice smiling face. So friendly <laughs> to everybody. It's much appreciated. Not, yeah. not intimidating for all the folks we have on the show coming on to talk about stuff. You're always, uh, always <laughs> super fun. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. This is a place for rants, raves, everything in between. I might complain about something. I might say something is awesome. Tell you something to read, watch, listen to. I mentioned ESPN Daily earlier in the podcast. Fantastic pod hosted by Pablo Torre. And they recently did an episode on the latest Brittany Griner news. Uh, excellent reporting from TJ Quinn. Highly recommended to educate yourself on why Brittany Griner, the WNBA star, was in Russia why she was detained, why the U.S. changed her classification to wrongly detained, and what that means about the efforts now from her family, the WNBA, and others to get her home, the politics behind the story, and more. It's really scary. She has now been in a Russian jail for months and months with no clear sign of release, and T.J. Quinn's been doing an excellent job on this, so definitely worth your time. ESPN Daily Podcast uh, a couple days ago. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain. If you've got guest suggestions, questions, or more, you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe to That's What She Said, follow That's What She Said, and rate it five stars, please. Give me a nice review, and maybe I'll read it on the pod. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's What She Said. That's What She Said.